Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Today is, I think, week four of coming through the book of Exodus. And let me just kind of go tell you where we've been so far. Uh, Where we've been so far... We've seen week one that, that God has made us, we're answering the question, who are, who are we? Who am I? As individuals, who am I? The, the question is, uh, who am I? And week one, I am a part of God's people. God has made us that by grace through faith in Jesus. He, the book of Exodus is a picture of what God is doing in the church. And anytime you see God begin to move throughout history, you always see Um, Satan, the adversary, rise up and come against that which God is doing. And we see that in the Old Testament. We see that all the way through. That is a constant theme where God is building. There will always be opposition. And we see that truth in Exodus chapter 1. But we see that you can't stop what God is doing. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hands. Amen? We see that truth in Exodus chapter 1, that I am made a part of God's people. Exodus chapter 2, that I am God's workmanship. And you see how God created Moses in his image for a purpose. He specifically wired him and designed him for good works that Moses should walk in, that God prepared beforehand. God designed Moses for this day and this day for Moses. And likewise, he has specifically designed and placed each one of us in this time and place in history, in this little city of Seneca, South Carolina. He has specifically placed us here and wired us for such a time as this. He has made the day for you and you for the day. God did that. That's no accident. And so my goal in all of these things is to help you understand who God's designed you to be. And if you would see what God has put in you by the working of Jesus and the working of the Holy Spirit, then if we began to live out who God has called us to be, we would be an unstoppable force. And Satan and all the powers of hell would tremble when we put our feet on the floor every morning. That there would be nothing that the church couldn't do if we began to live in the identity that he has given to us. Week three, we looked at the idea of being buried. That Moses had a past. Moses' past was painful. It was difficult. And whether it was being raised in a household that he knew wasn't his own household, uh, being raised in between identities, am I an Egyptian, am I a Hebrew, who am I? Or whether it was the sin that he committed in his life that he's running away from in chapter 2, all of that was painful. And last week we looked at the idea of either you've got to bury your past or your past is going to bury you. And the way that we deal with our past is head on with God. 
head on with God, that you can't sidestep your past, you can't sidestep your sin, but you've got to deal with it with God. God has resourced His people to deal with their past and their sin in such a way that He will bury your sin in the tomb that Christ has been buried in so that your sin will not find you out. He will bury it for you so that your past will not bury you. We looked at this idea last week. We deal with it with God head on over time in community. And so that's how we deal with sin. And this week we're going to look at this idea of being drawn out and being drawn in. We're drawn out and we're drawn in. And we see that in Moses. But not only do we see that in Moses, that's a theme of Scripture. A theme of Scripture is to be drawn out, to be drawn in. You could start all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Abram, leave the land of your fathers and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And there I will make of you a great nation. There I will bless you. There I will give you land. And so we see this threefold blessing in the book of Genesis. He is drawn out to be drawn into God. We look at Moses and we, we ask why drawn out. And here's what's interesting about Moses' life. You could kind of divide Moses' life into three periods of time. Three 40-year periods of time. Moses' name reveals some of what will take place in his life. Moses was so named Moses by Pharaoh's daughter because he was, in quotes, drawn out of the Nile or the river there, out of the water and into Pharaoh's house where he was a sojourner for 40 years. Then in the next period of Moses' life, Moses would be drawn out of Egypt into the wilderness where he would be a sojourner for the next 40 years where he would have a life-altering fiery encounter with Yahweh on a mountain. And then if you look at the third period of 40 years, Moses would then participate in Yahweh's redemption of Israel where an entire nation would be drawn out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into the wilderness as sojourners for another 40 years where they would have a life-changing, fiery encounter with Yahweh on the mountain. And finally, at the end of his life, Moses was ultimately, finally, once and for all, drawn out of this world and ushered into the very presence of God and into the eternal promised land where he would sojourn no more. And so we see this kind of theme in Moses' life of being drawn out to be drawn in. Drawn out to be drawn in. And so that's what I want to look, out, look at today. Drawn out. Why? Why is Moses drawn out? You might look at this this uh, passage, and you might say, well, Moses is drawn out because he's running away because his sin has found him out. And I just want you to know today that if you think that your sin is more powerful than a sovereign God, we do not worship the same God as the God that the Bible reveals to us. God is always working, even in Moses' sin, to accomplish his plan for his life. And so using Moses' sin as a tool, God draws Moses out. Why? First, he draws him out to meet with God. I don't know if you've noticed this about Moses' life, but in Moses' life, there was a lot of competition in his life for the things that his eyes were focused on. I want you to look at verse 11 with me. Chapter 2, verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. This 
there's kind of a theme here in, these, in this passage about where his eyes are fixed. He's looking on their burdens. Verse 12 said he looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now he's looking for a way to cover it up. In chapter 2, verse 21, it says, And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And what we see in this passage is that Moses was looking here, he was looking there, and he was content in the middle of it all. He was content. And then what we see in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2 through 4, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him, and he said, here I am. Okay, competition. God draws Moses out so that there's no more competition. He draws him out to draw him in. God draws Moses out into the wilderness for 40 years to live in the land of Midian as a sojourner. Why? So Moses can have a life-changing experience with God. So that Moses can have a face-to-face meeting with God. And we see that. And I want you to know, as much as Moses has competition in his life, we have competition for our attention, our affection, our desires also. We have competitions. We have competing expectations. Have you ever noticed... That if you ask a hundred people what they expect of you, there will be a hundred and fifty answers. Right? Uh, It's funny. I will go to lunch with somebody and they will tell me the plans that they have for me. Everybody's got expectations. I remember that's one of the first things that Liz and I ever debated about in our house when we got married. Is expectations. I remember just uh, one silly example. I get into Liz's car, we're going somewhere, Liz is in the passenger seat, I look at the little sticker up in the corner of her window, and I say, Liz, you're 5,000 miles past your, your, your oil change sticker. What are you doing? She said, my dad always did that for me. Well, my dad didn't, okay? And I remember, at that moment, I learned there was an expectation on my life. So, I get her oil changed. There was an expectation. We have lots of different expectations, whether it's spouses or children, or grandchildren or bosses, or customers or neighbors. Every one of these groups of people has expectations for our life, and they're all vying in our life for something. They're all instructing us to live a certain way, and they're all applying pressure to us. And we have... Truly, I want us to understand that we have one set of expectations to observe, and when we observe those expectations and we please that master, all of the other expectations, whether we meet them or not, will be okay. We have competing identities. I mean, you look at Moses' life, and he, he was in Egypt. He was a, out of the people of Israel, but he's now living as an Egyptian, and now he's in Midian, and I wonder if he's got competing identities there. Competing identities. Maybe he's got competing treasures. He's looking on all the treasures of the house of Pharaoh living in Egypt, or he's looking at 
the eternal rewards of King Jesus like Hebrews chapter 11 teaches us. That Moses is looking forward to a reward. So we have competing identities, expectations, treasures, and we have competing voices in our life. We have so many voices that speak so loudly in our minds. And no, I'm not crazy, okay? But I don't know about you, but in my head constantly there are different voices trying to vie for my ear. Trying to vie for my ear. And whether it's phones or TVs, or books, or politicians, or family members' opinions, or pastors, or sermons, or whatever it might be, as good as they might be, the question for us to answer is, how in the world do I discern God's voice in the middle of all the other voices? God here was drawing Moses out so that he could draw Moses in. Let me get you away from all of those things because I want to meet with you here so that you know my voice. How do I discern God's voice? And I I believe that the Scripture reveals that God speaks to His people, and for that I'm very thankful. And people may wonder, how does God speak? Some people say, well, God speaks audibly. Some people would say, "It's, it's the Bible and the Bible only. How does God speak? Now, I just need you to know I've never heard an audible voice. Maybe you have. But I have heard a voice inside of me that was so loud that when I was all alone it made me turn around. And so can God speak to us? The answer is yes, of course. Yes, of course. Now, I think there are two tests. How do I discern the voice of God versus the other voices or more specifically the voice of of the enemy, how there are two tests. Number one, first test is the test of content. The test of content. Does it align with God's self-revelation in the Bible? Does it align with God's self-revelation in the Bible? Now, let me be really clear. God's voice will never, and, and it's not always wise for people to say never, But let me tell you, I can say this for certainty. God's voice that speaks to you will never contradict what He has clearly revealed in Scripture. Never. I think I've told this story before here, but I once had a youth pastor, when I was the pastor in Columbia, I had a youth pastor serving under me that said, God told me not to tithe and be generous. I said, "Uh uh-huh. I don't... Know if that was God that you were speaking to there. It will never contradict what He's clearly revealed. Never. Second, the second test of is this God's voice, is this not? This is so helpful for me. This is the test of fruit. The test of fruit. Here's what I mean by that. What effect does this voice produce in your life? Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. You'll know a tree by its fruit. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul compares the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the flesh. So I want you to answer, what effect is this voice having in my head, in my heart, and in my hands? In my head. What effect is it having in my head? Is anxiety coming? Is doubt growing? Is fear rising? Is anger boiling up? 
What effects is this voice having in my head? Let me ask you a question. Let me be very honest. Let me be very blunt here. Does God ever produce anxiety in your life? No. Does God ever produce doubt in your life? Anger? I mean, there is a righteous anger. But does He ever produce a non-righteous anger in your life? The answer is, of course, no. In your heart, what, what fruit is this producing in your heart? Is it producing shame in your life? Guilt? Condemnation? In your life, bitterness in your heart, are these things rising up in you because of the voice that you're hearing? Let me ask you a question. Is there any condemnation in Christ Jesus? No. Is there any guilt for the Christian in Christ? No. Why? Because Christ has taken on himself our guilt entirely. What fruit is it producing in your life? Now, is there a difference between conviction and condemnation for the believer? Yes. Huge difference between conviction and condemnation. Here's the big difference. Condemnation is a tool of the enemy used to separate me from God. Conviction is a tool of the Father used to draw me in to God. What are you hearing? Is this making you want to run away or is this making you want to run to Abba Father? Let me tell you, if the voice is condemnation, that is not from God. This is not Him. Rather, this is the enemy. In your hands, we've got to ask the question, will that what I want to do, what the voice is telling me to do, will it hurt others? How will this glorify God? God's Word, God's Word, as difficult as it is sometimes to stomach. Have you ever found God's Word to be difficult to read? And I don't mean difficult like I don't understand it, but difficult like this is pointing its finger right in my chest, calling me out on my sin. Have you ever been there? The Word of God, as difficult as it is to stomach, always produces the fruit of of the Spirit in your life? Is it producing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? That's what God's voice always produces in your life. God's voice always produces the fruit of His Spirit. And can I just tell you, the fact that God speaks to us, that truth separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. That our God lives and He speaks to His children today. Isn't that good news? One problem in many of our lives is that many of us don't give God the opportunity to speak. And it's either sometimes we're afraid to be alone with Him, we're afraid to be still with Him. Or afraid to be silent. I'm not sure which one it is. But many times in my life, I'm afraid to be alone with Him. Or still. Or silent. I can't be alone because my identity is in people. I love being with people. I'm an extrovert. And so when I'm not with people, 
It's too quiet for me. I can't be still. How many of you are those people? You're those people. You, don't, you can't sit still. I got two nine and ten year old boys who are raising their hand, okay? Now, I know there is a bunch of other people that just don't like sitting still in this room. Miss Marianne, I know she's one of those. Don't, don't let her be still. But sometimes meeting with God and hearing His voice requires you to be alone with Him and to be still in His presence. That's what Psalm 46 says. Be still and know that I am God. And I can't be silent. How many of you are these kinds of people? No matter what's going on in your world, in your house at all times, the TV's on, just in the back. You're not even watching it. It doesn't matter what channel it's on, but the TV's on, the radio's on, a sermon's on, something's on all the time in your house. Are you those people? Can't stand it to be quiet. Well, now in my house, I love when it's quiet, because, or I don't like when it's quiet, because when it's quiet, it means that I've got three children that are up to something. It's trouble. It's trouble. But for many of us, silence is far too deafening, too loud. It's too uncomfortable for us. But can I just tell you, like Moses, God wants to draw you out so he can draw you into him. He wants to draw you out of all of the distractions, all of the competing voices, identities, etc., so that he can draw you in to hear his voice. Just think about it. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, found it necessary to wake up early in the morning and to be drawn out to a desolate place to be with God. Now, if Jesus, who's God in the flesh, found it necessary to do that, how much more necessary is it for us? To be drawn out, to be drawn in. I mean... Jesus, just think about this. Jesus had too many competing expectations and voices and desires of him to stay by the lake, to stay in Capernaum. So what did he do? He went to the mountain to pray. God was drawing him out to draw him in. And you and I need to be drawn out to be drawn in. He needed that time alone to be with God, to do what God had called him to do and to be what God had called him to be. And Jesus is true, teaching us a greater truth that life was not about anything more than being drawn out of this world and into God day by day. John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus in his high priestly prayer, he prays this phrase that is so much deeper than I think we give it credit for. He says this, and this is eternal life, that they know you. Let me ask the question, when does eternal life start? Many of us wrongly think that eternal life starts when I die. But Jesus reveals right here that eternal life starts the moment that I come into a relationship with God through Christ and I know Him. This is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is going to be like? It's going to be like an unending, um, a never-ceasing time with God where you know him more intimately than you've ever known you worship him more clearly than you've ever worshiped before in your life and you sit at the master's feet day by day serving day and night in his temple eternal life and so let me tell you if if we're going to have a relationship with God if we're going to live as children of God as workmanship Uh, of God, if we're going to participate in God's redemption, then we have to let him draw us out from all these other competing voices, identities, expectations, treasures, whatever it might be, into a daily walk with him in the quiet of the wilderness. 
Some of us, we need nothing more than to start a daily Bible reading plan. That small little discipline of your life that might cost you 15, 20, 30, 45 minutes of your day, that discipline will help you know and love God and begin to hear from Him like you've never heard Him before. You want to know if God speaks? Let me tell you, open His Word. He will speak to you day after day. The Word of God is the major way that He has ordained to speak to His people. God has said so much already. Church family, I want to encourage you. You will not know Him if you do not know His voice. Jesus even said in John chapter 10, I know my sheep and my sheep know my voice. We've got to be able to discern His voice. Moses was drawn out to be drawn in. If you just look at chapter 3, verse for when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him. Is this the first time that Moses had ever heard the voice of the Lord? What it led him to in a moment is shuddering in the, vo- in the, the, the presence of God. How much do we, his people, need to hear that voice and shudder in his presence day by day? He drew him out to meet with God. Second, he drew him out to be refined. Drew him out to be refined. Moses was drawn out of Egypt to be transformed, to be refined. Here's what I mean by that. We see who God created Moses to be. He created Moses to be a man of justice. We see that twice. Once in Egypt, he looks out over his people and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave so filled with wrath, he runs out, he strikes down this man and buries him in the sand. That's justice. That kind of anger, righteous indignation at the things that anger God is good, but the reaction, what he did with what was right, what was put in him, was sinful. And so we see his justice again when the shepherds were uh, were not letting the daughters of Ruel go out and water the flock. Moses stood up for them. He fought for them. That's good. That is what Moses ought to do. He has this sense of justice. God put that in him. God wired him specifically, but now God wants to take what he's wired and he wants to refine it. Can I just tell you? That's our story. Moses was being drawn out for a purpose, that by meeting with God, Moses' upbringing might be redeemed. His sins might be forgiven. His identity learned and his character refined. And that all happened in God's presence there on the mountain. Now here's the good and bad news. Good and bad news of life. All of our life could be summed up with this word. Sanctification. Now sanctification is a fancy word for being made holy is is what it really means in the Greek. It means to be made holy, or the process of that. In other words, to be made like Jesus. In that process, sanctification, to be made like Jesus, that process never ends. That's good news and that's bad news, because no matter where you are, you're in process. We, We have 
you know, this idea in our mind that we've got process going on D-Wing over there. Every day there's a new room being painted. Every day there's work being done. We've got so much stuff going on around our church facility. You see progress happening. Now, we just need to wear t-shirts that would say, excuse my mess, a work in progress. And that's us. That's our lives. We are a work in progress. God, I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, the same one who began the good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So, hey, if you're, if you're a, a stutterer, you're in good company. If you've got some sin in your life, hey, have no fear because the God who saves you is sanctifying you. If you fail regularly, you're in good company. Even Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, had his failures, and we see them on display at times in the New Testament. You think you're, you've failed in such a way that God would look down on you and say, no longer useful, take Peter, for example. His very disciples all, at the time when they needed him most, failed him most. But yet, God redeems them and sanctifies them and uses them to turn the world upside down. You're in process. Isn't that good news? You don't have to have a sign across your chest that says, I'm perfect now. And if you do, we all are just laughing behind your back. We know that nobody is perfect. None of us have it all together. It, the problem is when we stop pressing forward. The problem is when we stop pushing on to what lies ahead. So, there's this idea. All of life could be summed up with that word. Sanctification. Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Have you ever asked, God, what's your will for me? What do you want me to do? What do you have for me? What's your plan for me? hear that all the time. Specifically, college students are asking that question. What's your plan for my life? I want you to be like me. I want you to be in an ever-ending process where you are being transformed to look more like my son Jesus. That's what I want for you. Now, sanctification. That is this idea that we are holy. Now, it's also the same word in Greek that when the New Testament calls us saints, the same word that you are holy ones now i don't know about you but i don't feel like a holy one most days so we need to understand there's a, a division here there's this difference between being holy in standing and holy in action holy in standing or holy in life right now here's the beauty the holy standing that we need to enter heaven has been accomplished for us Jesus was holy. He was our substitute in his life and in his death. He lived sinlessly and died a sinner's death. And by faith, Jesus transferred the debt of our sin into his account. And Jesus transferred the credit of his holiness into our account. That's the gospel. That he became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel. Now, we are holy in standing. That's why the New Testament can call you freely. You are a saint. Not because you're perfect, but because of what Christ has accomplished for everyone who by faith looks upon the man on the tree. 
But the holy inaction part, that's God's purpose for your life. Live out what God has put in. This Philippians chapter 2 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That does not mean earn your faith, but rather what God has put in you by faith, work it out in your daily life with fear and trembling. And so the first step in our process of sanctification, our refining, is coming into the presence of God. And Moses comes up the mountain and he comes to a fire. Refining always happens in relationship to a fire. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 and then 29 reminds us of this truth. He says, you've not come to what may be touched. And then he goes on and he says, for our God is a consuming fire. And I want you to look at verse 5. The closer Moses came, the more uncomfortable he became. Verse 5 says, Then he said to him, Do not come near. Take, off the, take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And then in verse 6, it says that Moses was afraid. He hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, do you think that in Egypt Moses knew that he was a sinner? Yes. But when he came into the presence of God, when he was drawn out and into God's presence, the, the, the sense of his sin became so much clearer. Here's what I mean by that. A person can have a, a sense of general sinfulness, but when I come into the presence of God, generalities are consumed and I'm left with a particular sense of my sin. There is, Oswald Chambers says it this way, there is never a vague sense of sin in the presence of God. If I asked you if you're a sinner, you say, yeah, I'm a sinner. Aren't we all? But when we come before the very throne of God, when we come into His presence, I don't say, well, I'm a sinner. I, like Isaiah in chapter 6 says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. The generality was was consumed in the particular nature of Isaiah's sin came to the surface. And when we're in the presence of God, your sin will always be um, made more specific. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. How, how are we being transformed? As we with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord, as I come into His presence, behold Him in His glory, then, then I'm transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The fire of God that refines us is not all-consuming, but sin-consuming. It's self-consuming. And the God who refines us is the God who sees us clearly. And as we're drawn out, and as we come up the mountain to meet with Him, Yahweh helps us to see ourselves the way He sees us. That's terrifying. But there is so much beauty here that God's grace... And His mercy will always be sufficient for the sin that He exposes. God's fire will always be applied 
where sin is revealed. Isaiah, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. What did the cherubim do? The cherubim took a set of tongs, flew to the altar, grabbed a flaming coal, and where did the flaming coal from this cherubim touch Isaiah? Lips. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. The cherubim flies down, grabs a coal, and refines his lips. Mercy and grace will always meet us in the place where sin is exposed. And this is a beautiful work of the Holy Spirit, but it is a painful one. Refining will always leave us changed, transformed, with scars that make us look like Jesus. But we should not fear the flame. We should not fear the fire of God's refining. For He disciplines the child in whom He loves. He delights. He Don't recoil at the fire of God. Because when Yahweh refines you or begins to refine you by fire... It's through refining that we're conformed into the image of His Son, little by little. So God drew Moses out to meet with him, and He drew him out to be refined by him. I just want to encourage you this morning, when you come to a place of conviction, of a particular sin, walk with God. Will it be painful as He reveals it, as He pulls it out, as He shows it to you? Yes. But walk with Him, for there, when you walk with Him, when you obey Him in that moment where He is exposing to you your sin, guess what? He will reveal the sin, the greater sin that's underneath, and the good news of the gospel is the same blood that cleanses you, sanctifies you. Where He reveals sin, there is always grace greater than our sin. So He drew Him out. To meet with him. He drew him out to refine him. This is our life. To meet with God. To be refined by him. So how do we come up the mountain? Day by day. How do you make this practical, Ryan? How do we come up the mountain? How do we meet with God? How are we refined? And I just want to encourage you, my friend, don't discount the Bible. Don't discount the Bible. Well, that sounds like a very Sunday school churchy answer. It does, but it's also the answer. Don't discount God's word. It is the major way that God has ordained for you to know God, to meet with God, to hear God, to see your sin rightly, and to let the Holy Spirit refine you. He does that through his word, which Hebrews says is like a double-edged sword that cuts you and exposes you. The Holy Spirit uses His Word in our life to accomplish most of His purpose for us. And so today, I want to invite you into that journey. Maybe you found a season of complacency where, where you're not hearing God well. Come up the mountain to meet with Him. Maybe you're in a season where you are complacent and you don't let anybody speak into your life. Where you have this vague sense of sinfulness, but the Holy Spirit 
the fire of God is not revealing and refining specific sin out of your life. Come up the mountain and meet with God. Meet with Him there. Find a fresh joy in your daily time with the Lord. Let it reignite your passion for Him and your passion for being a part of His redemption. This moment on the mountain with Moses and Yahweh on the mountain is entirely necessary for all that God wants to do through him. Moses would never have become the redeemer of Israel without this moment on the mountain. You want God to use you? Come up the mountain first. Let him refine you. Come in this journey. Let him draw you out so that he might draw you in. Look upon the blazing fire of God. Look deeply in His Word. Go to the mountain with Him. Be drawn out. And I promise, if you let God, through His Spirit, by His Word, if you let Him draw you out, I promise, you will be drawn into His heart like you have never been before. And as I, as I close, can I tell you what our world doesn't need? Our world doesn't need empty church-going religion. That will never draw a heart to Christ. But I remember what Luke said about the disciples in Acts chapter 4. One of the authorities who had arrested a group of disciples for preaching said this. They're just common. They're just uneducated men, but they've been with Jesus. And God used them to turn the world upside down. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, come on. Come in. Let him draw you out so that he might draw you in. I don't know what God might be saying to you today, but whether you have sin that needs to be confessed, or you don't know Jesus, You don't have eternal life because you don't know God. Come give your heart to Christ. Come become a saint in an instant by faith in the risen Savior. Maybe you just found yourself in a place of complacency. Come, take your first step up the mountain today to meet with Him and to be refined by Him. Would you stand with me? And would you pray with me? Father God, I come into your presence this morning and I thank you for your refining in my life. I thank you that you've not left me alone, that you discipline the the son in whom you delight. I thank you that that discipline, that refiner's fire in my life is not a sign of your abandoning or forsaking, but rather it's a sign that you have not, that I am one of your children. Father, if we're not experiencing any refiner's fire, any of God's discipline, we need to question in our heart whether or not we're children of God. So would you help us to test to examine our own hearts, to see whether or not we are children of God. 
And if we are, may we be drawn up the mountain to meet with you. May we be refined there on the mountain. And may all of that be so that we might be useful to your service. Father, we love you and we need you. And I I pray that you'd speak to these folks here today in Jesus' name. And everybody said, as we sing, you respond.